and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we are getting started on a one-month voyage through Stephen King's nightmares and dreamscapes. Before we get started, how was your week? My week was filled with both nightmares and dreamscapes. Oh, fun. But it was otherwise enjoyable. How was yours? It was good. We're still sheltering in place. Yes, we're we still are. listening. We're responsible people. To the uh, higher-ups of both Alameda County and the state of California. Yes. Well, heartily ignoring the higher-ups any higher than that. And we are, I think my most, my biggest piece of interest for this week was my phone every day says, we're going to update you. And then every night says, we didn't update you. <laughs> so well, I'm I, glad that it's on top of things. <laughs> I don't know who... Stay tuned to find out if my phone ever updates itself. I will hold my breath with suspense. Yes, that is that is the state of my life. Sorry, everyone. But I did get to watch a couple of very interesting hours of television. Mm-hmm. And some entertaining movies. Yes, and some entertaining movies. But we're going to start with hours of television. Hours of television. Uh, so we are watching a not great version of these that are in a playlist on YouTube. They all now, appear there, to be there. There are other episodes that you can pay for, right? $5 a piece yes. seemed like too many dollars. Five hours for an hour, or five dollars for an hour. For 40 minutes, basically, because it was, right. yeah. So we're not doing that. But that kind of detracted a little bit from the second episode that we watched. But we'll Maybe. talk about that right. when we get there. So... Nightmares and Dreamscapes was an eight-episode anthology series aired on TNT, the home of our Salem's Lot that we just watched. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So they went big on Stephen King at the time. They did. All right. Yes, this is the same... same, No, this is two years later. Okay. uh, 2006. It aired over four weeks. Okay. Two episodes a night. So that's how we're going to watch it. uh, And cover it. So we're going to be doing this for the next four weeks. Uh, they are, like I said, available to watch for free online. So far. But uh, we're warning people the quality of the production for the free episodes. For the free episodes is not great. Not so great. But I would also say it's probably better if you're, I don't know, not watching it on a TV. We're watching it together on the television. If we were watching it on our respective computers it or phones, yeah. it'd probably look a little bit better. But, you know, meh. The cast so far has been impressive and continu- and will continue to be so. You get um, clips in the en- intro mm-hmm. of a bunch of different people, so we know who's coming down the pike. But we're going to not talk about them until we talk about them. Sounds good? You're right. Okay. So what I will say, the special effects for this anthology series were provided by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Uh, very apparent in the first episode, which was also directed by one Brian Henson. Hmm, those names sound very suspiciously similar. Yes. <laughs> um, I am a fan of Jim Henson. I am a... I might be as big a fan of Brian Henson. Mm-hmm. I like that he's like, unlike my dad, but like dirty and we swear. Like, that's his whole jam. He loves it so much. <laughs> he just wants a puppet to say cunt. Like, that is like I Brian Henson. puppet has ever said that. Entire... You've never seen uh, Avenue Q. No, I have not. I actually, I also have not seen Avenue Q, so 
full disclosure, I don't know that a puppet says cut, but I know that it's Brian Henson's reason to try to get a puppet to say cut. And I'll stop saying that word now, everyone. Thank you. You've made me uncomfortable. I am sorry. <laughs> I'm saying it in the abstract, not yes. in the specific. Um, so episode one and two, episodes one and two air on July 12th, 2006. And the audacity of this show is to have the first episode that they air have how many lines of dialogue, Lemuel? I don't know if there's a one. Yep. I'm going to go zero. This thing was a silent film. I mean, it was, it had sound. There was sound, sound effects, lots of grunting and tiny bullet, uh, or tiny gunshots. Mm -hmm. But there are no words spoken between people it is possible that his concierge says like hello to him when he walks in yes but but we don't know so the first episode this is the one directed by brian henson uh, notoriously not a director of people but of uh well director of people (laughs) yes yeah no that's true see and and the fact that you don't think of him as director of people means that he's He's very successful job. job that's right i do everyone i do understand that puppets are people or puppets are puppeted by people. Puppets are people. Puppet. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the, the the motto of a liberation. Front I know, and I don't want to like puppet lives matter. Like I don't want to do that. I don't want to leave and lead into that. But yeah. so this first episode called Battleground. Uh, let me let me tell you what it's about. Uh-huh. I'll give you a, a brief summary. A professional hitman, played by William Hurt receives a package of sinister toy soldiers after killing the CEO of a toy company. That's it. That's all, folks. It's 45 minutes of William Hurt murdering somebody and then being murdered <laughs> by right, yeah. little green soldier men. And it's so good. It's amazing to watch. It's No, this is directed by Brian Henson. It was written by Richard Christian Matheson. Is that... The uh, son of Richard Matheson. See, there you go. It's the sons of. It's right. the sons of the episode. <laughs> um, Richard Matheson, for those of you in the audience who should know better, Be is... nice. Probably the single greatest and most influential writer of horror since the 1940s. Horror films or horror books? Uh, both. If you've ever seen the film or read the book The Legend of Hell House or I Am Legend or The Incredible Shrinking Man... Have you seen the film Duel? Or that's or a number of the the better or of the more memorable Twilight Zone episodes from its original run. There you go. That's where you need to go because I'm uh, like, well, so far I'm relatively unimpressed by the things that you've listed. <laughs> I think you've seen versions of them that are unimpressive. There, that and, and, may be and true. That's, except for Duel, which was Steven Spielberg's. Um, Last great film, according well, to Well, launching you. point, yes, to, according to me, his last great film. But um, but yes, he wrote a lot of... His gift was to take horror out of moldering castles and put them in the middle of your street. Oh, He's, gotcha. He, he was part of the generation like Ray Bradbury who just moved it to your neighborhood or moved it behind your high school or with characters that you knew. Gotcha. So he's a huge influence on Stephen King as well. Yes, well, of course. So... Uh, this whole episode, as we said, no mm-hmm. speaking in it. Right. We open, um, and we're seeing a man in a car. That man is William Hurt, 
and a man in an office. That man is unnamed toy executive. No, he's not unnamed. He's got a name. I've forgotten what it is. But he's a toy executive. He seems distraught. Uh, I'd be distraught too. Because I feel like if there is an assassin out to get you, you know that you've done something bad to someone. Or someone bad has uh, designs on you. So he... uh, William Hurt dons this weird mask that's barely a mask. It's like a like a pale face with no distinguishing characteristics. Right. And he puts a ball cap on. So it look he looks like a person from afar, but his his uh identity would not be known by anybody taking a picture or seeing him on a camera. And he goes in and he does he kill Everyone, he you know, seems he's to... actually very professional. He takes out a number of people in the process of getting into the building, but he seems to only kill his mark. Okay, so he wounds a bunch of people uh-huh. and then kills this main toy maestro. And then he flies home to San Francisco. Hey, welcome home, yeah. William Hurt, where he lives apparently in a hotel. <laughs> yes, uh, in a very swanky hotel. Yes. Uh, he goes up to his penthouse room, mm-hmm. and a short time later, he he um, changes his clothes. He doesn't swim then, but we see his pool, and he we're like, an "Indoor pool. This um, room is awesome." He's what I like. It's about not the, an indoor pool. It's outside. Well, it comes into that. Okay, yeah. It's yeah. It's what I like about the way that there's um, in silent movies there used to be. Yeah, and there is uh, also in. in you see it in foreign films, too. A lot of establishing the characters done without dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so we get to see a lot of establishing or, or little bits that establish yes. who he is. So he's very well off. We uh-huh. see him finish his job. He's basically his son. And you see that he's got another job waiting for mm-hmm. him. So he's a person in demand. He's got some job security. Right. Uh, he is fastidious. His place is spotless. Exactly. He's very meticulous. Uh, which I think, to be a professional assassin, that is right. like the number one He's not a mad dog killer by any means. He's yeah. a person who's very No, if thoughtful. you're going to make money and have jobs coming right. in on the reg, you have to be fastidious. You have to dot your I's and cross your T's. And uh, we see him doing that. He showers, I believe, at one point. And then we see the blonde concierge from downstairs that we saw when he came in. Uh, come up and leave a package on his doorstep. And he brings the package in, and he treats it as though it is a bomb. Right. It is a... It could very well be is, given his profession. It is a rectangular package, and it is wrapped in plain brown paper with his address on it, mm-hmm. but no return address. And so we see him cut apart the paper very carefully, looking for leads or anything like that. And then when he finally gets it open, it is a... <clears throat> Excuse me, a replicant, a, rep- replicant. a replicant, a, a replica. It's Daryl Hannah in the box. <laughs> it is. And a there re- you go saying cunt again. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Can't is a different word. Are you it's a replicant a- or a replicant? Uh, well, it depends on who you ask, I suppose. Um, it's a replica okay. of a foot soldier's. Uh, a foot, uh, like a a footlocker. Footlocker. That's the word. So, so um, is that something that made it to your generation? I'm wondering because that was very common when we were kids, <laughs> and before that too, I think. I don't know. 
my experience of early 80s toys and other people's experience of early 80s toys is very different because we were very poor. Uh So to get something of this level with all of... So this thing says it comes with a bunch of these soldiers, like 21 soldiers, I think it is, Mm -hmm. and three helicopters and like two howitzers. Like it's got a a list of toys. And then on the back, there's a big sticker Mm -hmm. that they really want you to be aware of. It says, bonus surprises included. Um he misses that sticker, and it's detrimental to him later. Uh, so he, um, uh, I, I don't know, nothing like that. I remember, like, in a CVS toy aisle, mm. a netted mesh bag of, like, ten little army toys, mm-hmm. all pressed out of that green um, plastic with seams around the outside yes, of them that were, like, very sharp. <laughs> um and and things like that, but I don't know if a full Footlocker situation. We were. I'm also in the post GI Joe. Well, yeah, and, and world where it was 12 inch action figures they, that are they like were these really massive common. things. You saw them in comic book advertisements in the 50s and 60s. They were less popular during Vietnam, I'm sure. But uh, you would get these little molded plastic soldiers that are in in army green. Yeah, and they would come in a Footlocker, and there would be various toys that came with them. And you would get the whole lock, and they advertise it mostly in the back of comic books. And they would come like a hundred to a box or something. Yeah. And there were different men, and it was... And diff- a, there were like six different right. poses or whatever. And right. All One, be, there was yeah. a guy with a hand grenade that's... Like, let, let it lob it, yeah. There's the, the reclining guy with a, the um, soldier with the uh, rifle. And they were so common that... The first Toy Story. I was going to say, I think in 2006, everybody knows this because in Toy Story, they are a pivotal piece of it. Yeah. And that's 1994. By the time that G.I. Joe came around, they became like fantasy figures. There were ninjas and Mm -hmm. G.I. Joe. And And nothing so, I mean, the, the, the ones I remember, they were very small. Right. When Like less, like an inch high maybe. When I was maybe? a kid, and there was a G.I. Joe at our job that is over a foot tall. Okay, yeah. That you've seen, and that's how it used to come. It used to be huge. Yeah, G.I. Joe's uh, are a weird size to me. It's like, they were like, no, no, we're going to make full-size dolls for boys. They were dolls boys. for boys is what they Which were. Which is... Yeah, um, if, if, were, you're a, if you want a G.I. Joe, regardless uh, of your gender or sex, get that G.I. Joe. But yet, it's a, it seems like a... They seem like they'd be very heavy. Yes, they were. And all the equipment was enormous. I mean, the things that the oh, That's the other thing. Yeah, them. if I need a Jeep for my G.I. Joe, I can drive it. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty big. And so they, you know, sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, they moved to making really small ones. Like the eight inch, or, yeah, the, the, or the even smaller. They're like yeah. three or four inches tall. Oh wow! Okay. But um, but yeah, before that, it was really common uh, a toy, a locker full of soldiers. But yeah, I, I don't know. That's something that probably Stephen King would remember really well. Yeah. Yes. Given his generation, and what's even funnier is like Battleground. The name of the episode was the name of a TV show in the fifties. Oh, was, interesting. Uh, soldiers, I think, working their way across Europe. First, war was very popular. I think. I always uh, after, has been. After the Second World War, there was a lot of combat. There were a lot of TV shows, Rat mm-hmm. Patrol, that were about war, world, the exploits of World War II soldiers. And they appealed to the um, the parents who remembered the war 
or who you know, put themselves in those exploits, and also the kids, right? Which was an element of Stand by Me, right? Where they're you know shooting, pretending Although to shoot guns at each well, other. Even later, that's Vietnam yeah. residue. But I mean, we've been at war. Well, we've been at war continuously, almost. I mean, yeah, World War One, World War Two. Then you've got Korea. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Vietnam. Then you've got. A, a break right. where we were in a cold war where it was kind of, I don't want to say it was worse. Um, well, you didn't know who you were shooting at. and We didn't know right. what if something terrible was about to happen. Like yeah. when you're hiding from nukes under a school desk. That's no good. Uh, that was not something I ever had to do. And then, of course, um, Afghanistan and the Middle East uh, right. post-2001, which has not, not uh, we're, we're entering... The twentieth year of that, and it is as much as people say that it's done. It's uh, not done. Yeah, it's one of those strange the wars soldiers that, that are dying pretty much every week would tell you it is not done. It just keeps going. It's like, yeah. Uh, how many years after the mission was uh, declared over? Well, we need to secure that oil. Yes, That's very important. Uh, politicals, politicals, politicals. <laughs> so uh, he. Does he try and throw it away? How does it sort of initiate? It initiates very much um, with the soldiers getting out of the locker themselves, I remember. Yeah, and like did it fall onto the ground or something and then they flipped out? and? No, you don't see them. As a, What's interesting is... Or does he like go about his business while the end they are right, the background and they set so, up a, an offensive basically under his couch? To tell you more stories that you, no one cares to hear, at the same time that I was watching this, I watched that episode that night, I was also catching up on, because I mentioned a few weeks ago I was watching the um, Night Stalker uh-huh. and the Night Strangler and watching all the old Dan Curtis stuff for television. And one of the things I watched was Trilogy of Terror. Oh, yeah. With Karen Black. Yeah, we do get a gratuitous cameo by right. the Zuni fetish doll from which Trilogy was, of Terror. Which was great because it was written by the son of the guy who wrote Trilogy yeah. of Terror. Yep, yep, yep. So, it was a very much a, hey, check out, I love my dad, I love my dad. Right, and they, were, and they actually wrote together at times, mm-hmm. too. They had projects together. but um, Like Stephen King and his boys. Right, Aww. exactly. So there, there were moments there where there were really obvious callbacks, and one of them is the fact that he's going about his business and suddenly notices little things wrong um, with the room, and it's very similar to what happened with uh, in uh, in Trilogy of Terror, the segment where Karen Black just notices that the fetish doll she brought from the curiosity shop isn't where she put it. And then suddenly she reaches into the sofa and she gets stabbed. Mm-hmm. And so it hit a lot of those same mm-hmm. beats. Mm-hmm. Only it worked up over in a different direction because it's on a bigger scale here. There's lots of soldiers, not just sort of one thing and the, or one creature to deal with. And the person who's dealing with him is a professional himself. So it becomes a very kind of odd um, battleground, to use the title. Mm-hmm. You know, he has, a, at one point, he finds a, well, he has a machine gun under yes. the bar. He has a machine gun, he pulls it out, and then he destroys mm. his couch. Right. And then flips his couch over and he sees what what is happening. Well, sees... Which is weird. I mean, this is TNT, so it's still cable, but it's, you know, a tame cable. 
that scene where he flips over the couch and sees the mutilated bodies of the toy soldiers, it actually and wound then up, steps on two of them, right. which is just like Whoa. it wound up being kind of gross. Yeah, even though you know that there's plastic. no blood, right, from them. From he, them, he bleeds a lot significantly. No. Um, there's some very graphic makeup in this episode. Yeah, and very realistic of what it would look like if somebody did set fire to your leg, for instance. Yes, he um, at different points during the battle. Mm-hmm. He is shot by their guns. Right. He's also shot by what I presume was a howitzer. It's right. some sort of fifty cal. It's a or big weapon. It makes softball size holes in his bathroom door, right. and one of them hits him in the knee. Yeah, I think that was the bazooka that hit him in the knee. He gets uh, cut in the face and arms or hands, maybe mm-hmm. by a helicopter blades. And one that flies into his face as well. Yeah, his face and hands is what I said. Yes, (laughs) yes, flies into his... And the face... And then he sews him up, not himself up, not once, but twice, two separate times in this movie. He self-sutures while not uttering one word. Mostly, I think, at this point, because the word he would utter is not okay to say on TNT in 2006. I have to say, too... (laughs) I've always and liked, the makeup was spectacular. Yes. I've always liked William Hurt's performances, mm-hmm. although I've heard he's a little difficult as an actor, but he's a perfectionist. I believe that. And he, as a perfectionist, it, it is hard to deal with other people with less perfection. However, this, I felt like he was in pain. Yes. He sells that makeup. He sells mm-hmm. the kind of panic. There's moments when you genuinely want him to pull this one off, even though he's a horrible human being. There is a part of the story where he climbs out on the ledge outside of his uh, apartment, his incredibly swanky apartment, and is dealing with a helicopter. And there's, you know, it, it recalls King Kong. It was very funny. It is. I was like, now he's going to swat at this thing. Right. Fully King Kong. He's and then his improvised tools that he makes out of, I think it's like roach spray or something. Um, yes. He gets some sort of mm-hmm. insect spray, some sort of spray, and turns that into a basically a flamethrower. Right. Um, and he uses his fire extinguisher. Right. And that is sort of how he gets the upper hand. Right. He just yeah. finally, he, he they're, they're making two fronts. And so he bathes one of them in the fire extinguisher uh, mist, which that fire extinguisher goes way longer than it would actually oh, go. Yes. It's a small now, fire extinguisher we, we, we and it would have gone out. toy soldiers coming to life, so... I know. This is not where you... this is where I'm drawing my line. That is, I'm not dying on the hill. I'm just well, saying that did. was my line. <laughs> and, spoiler. And um, then he attacks the other offensive front with yeah. the flame from whatever bug spray right. or you know, Lysol, or I don't know what it is, but it burns, and he he manages to take out these two fronts. Now, at this point, he lines them all up, gets all their pieces together, and does an inventory from the list on the front of the... Being methodical as he is. ...foot locker, mm-hmm. which I cannot remember the term for. <laughs> so, and like he, he gets store. everything, and then he puts it all... Um, he puts them all in a bag or a box, and then he puts it in a garbage, a trash compactor, which is a thing that I've never had in my home. So I was like, what's he doing? Why doesn't he the, just burn this? The only one I've ever seen is on the Death Star, I think. Okay, yes. Yes, so it's a, it is a trash compactor yeah. that he ends up putting it all into. And then at that point, he's like, I'm going to take a shower, and then I'm going to go for a swim, because, sure. 
Why wouldn't you? <laughs> You've just destroyed your couch and several other pieces of furniture. Your house is a disaster. But what you need right now is a leisurely swim in your pool. And I was just like, that thing's probably got chlorine in it. His cuts are going to hurt like a motherfucker. <laughs> so um, he does, in fact, go for a swim, at which point, and then we come back from a commercial break. You can see the commercial right. cuts pretty it's clear obvious. in it. And he gets to the end of his pool, and he gets cut. Something cuts him. I can't see what it is. He gets out of the pool. Smart. I was like, is it a, is it a submarine? Now, here we are to the part where, and now we have been shown the sticker, I think, mm. three times, and bonus, you know... Surprise. Surprise. And I'm like, okay, what is it? And it turns out it's this fucking little commando. It's a tiny Sylvester Stallone. He is bigger than the other guys. Mm -hmm. And he uh, has many weapons. And he does not take no for an answer. And uh -oh. so he was right. in the pool. And he, he's the one that cut him with his tiny knife. His machete, I think. I think it was a machete. But it's a little tiny right. machete. But it can do a lot of damage. He ends up at one point on his back and this thing jumps on his chest and then like stabs him so many times with this tiny machete. <laughs> Just like, holy shit. Uh... Uh, at this point, he has we have the second of the suturing scenes as he uh, puts himself in his um, bathroom and tries to figure out what the hell he needs, he's going to do. And then he decides to... Oh, uh, was it before or after? Was it the commando that sends him out onto the ledge? or no, was the it the ledge was before that. Because so, he, by the time the commando shows up, the rest of the army Everybody else is gone. Is gone. Yes. Right. Um, so the he had previously been uh, chased onto the ledge that surrounds his penthouse apartment, a la Creep Show. Mm -hmm. And we have a whole segment out there. We've already talked about that segment. Yeah. It was well done. Yes. Instead of a pigeon, it was a tiny helicopter. Uh, and he does end up making it back in. Right. Uh uh, and then is, of course, victorious. And then he, um, so he is going to leave, I think, is this, this is how he decides, like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to go, uh, not be in my house with this tiny uh, assassin. Only one, room for one assassin here. And so I am going to leave. And he gets into the elevator and it stops. And we see the tiny, Commando, like, like a like on top of the, <laughs> right, elevator. the elevator. He's gone on top of the elevator, and then I'm like, "Oh, is he gonna cut the <laughs> the ropes? Like, what's he gonna?" That would do? take him a solid year with that tiny machete. And then he, um, instead, he jumps down into the elevator, right, and attacks him, and then pulls up. He's got a there's a rocket. Well, right? what he does is that um, the hitman is able to wedge him under the elevator doors that oh, he that's smashed. Right. He smashed. But his surprise is, as it turns out, is a scaled-down thermonuclear device. In his backpack. Right. And yes. it, he sets it off, which then blows up the entire elevator shaft. At which point, William Hurt like sees what's happening. He sees what's in his hand. Uh -huh. And he is very calm. Right. He's like, well... I guess now I die. <laughs> he does not. 
there's no noise. Right. There's just this look of like, well, I did what I could. You win some, you lose some. They're like, can't get it. Like, there's no trying to like scramble mm-hmm. the door open. No. None of that. Well, he's also at this point very much wounded. There's no recall, I think, of Pet Cemetery where his Achilles tendon or something gets slashed. Yes, he cut, he, so he's, he's cut, he's his knee really is fucked up, his Achilles tendon is slashed, around, yeah. his face has that huge gash in right. it, his hands are both fucked up, and like I said, he that the, the commando gets on his chest at one point, stabs right. him a bunch of times with this machete, which, yes, it's a tiny knife, but a one-inch stab wound, mm. like 14 times into your yeah. chest over your heart, that could kill you. So, you know, he, yeah, he's not in great shape. But he, and then right. and then there's a big explosion. And then that's the end. Well, there's... um. Oh, there was the note, uh-huh. right? The note on the thing was had the same... Because right at the beginning, there's the toy maker is reading a note from his mother, and mm-hmm. you said, why is it signed by the devil? Now, right, explain a, all of that. A tiny little sigil, it looks like, almost a happy face, that With has horn. horns. And this is also written on the note that accompanies the footlocker. So it implies that there's some sort of supernatural origin to all of this. There's also another little bit of business that gets done where a William Hurt's character takes a souvenir from his victims, which yes. is where we see the Zuni fetish doll. That's right. He's um, got like a like a glass case full of Right. And what he takes it looks like a tiny dancer. Like yeah. the kind that Tony Danza holds. He takes it and puts it in his cabinet and the moment that he dies, the dancer activates all by itself. That that's pretty much the end of the story. But it does give you just the barest hint that something supernatural rather than, you know, a, a toy maker made tiny mechanical people, that something else entirely is going on. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the story. Mm-hmm. The story was written in 1970. Well, it was published first in 1972, an episode mm-hmm. or an issue of Cavalier magazine, and it was to the men's magazine, right? Yes, okay. I believe so. Uh, Cavalier and uh, Playboy published a lot, a lot of Stephen of King's sh- short stories. Fiction generally, yeah. Yes, fiction generally, but a lot of Stephen King's short stories were in those. I remember having somewhere in this house there is an edition of. Uh, fantasy fiction published in Playboy. And it's surprising how many first-rate authors, including Richard Matheson, Stephen King, and Ray Bradbury, were getting published in Playboy. So yeah. I suppose there really was a reason to read it for the article. There there was, yes. There were very good writers being published right. in those in those publications. Also, there are boobs in there if you're interested in that sort of thing. All sorts of things. And then it was collected into the Night Shift book. Mm-hmm. The story is almost identical, mm-hmm. except... The mother of the toy maker is who sends him this. Uh, it's explicit who sends him this package. Right. Also, that it's a branded GI Joe okay. in the in the well, story, which of course they that, couldn't right. do that. Uh, and then he ends up ending their battle with a Molotov cocktail and sending off that thermonuclear oh, explosion okay. himself. That is different here, and I actually like the way this plays out a little bit right. better than that, especially in the in the visual of it all. Yeah, visually, this is amazing. I, I was trying to figure out, when I looked at it, or not trying to figure out, I can imagine how it was, part of it was done, which was the entire set must have been elevated. Yeah, Because you're getting so much, or with a snorkel camera, a lens on the camera, 
there are so many low angle shots taken from just carpet level mm-hmm. of these soldiers getting around and it's composited really well. It does it not is. look I think what helps is that the people don't have to look real, they have to look plastic. And that gives an extra layer of weirdness to it as well. Yeah. So at several points during the episode, the the Zuni Fetishtal is mm-hmm. uh is in there. Uh as an homage to Dad, right? And as we said, the episode also has a similar plot structure to a uh, episode of The Twilight Zone called The Invaders. Right. Uh, with a, a, a battle between a silent protagonist and miniature attackers, different miniature attackers. Well, right? in that case, they are people from outer space. Oh, fun. Well, it's fun. That means I'm, aliens. Well, <laughs> people from outer space means I aliens. I don't want to. Oh. There's a twist. Okay, gotcha. I'm not going to give away. That's pretty neat. <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. Is it is it the same spoiler as Planet of the Apes? <laughs> then we'll just skip that. I'll forget eventually, and then you can make me watch that. Mm-hmm. Then several of the film shots and action scenes are sort of reminiscent of famous war movie things. Right. William Hurt has his head in the pool at the waterline, like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, right? right. The last surviving toy soldier has an army of one look and attitude like Rambo. He do- right. really does look like a tiny... I, I was like, that's a tiny Stallone. It's not a Stallone. It's um, an actor who is uncredited in this. And uh, similar concepts, of course, in Small Soldiers, which is what I thought of. And uh, apparently one of the uh, segments in Tales from the Hood, which I have not seen. Okay. Uh, although I've heard it's not bad. Right. Well, I had a, a director who was very much the old school anthology horrors from England. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, but I have to applaud the audacity of... We're going to have an eight-episode run. And the first one we're going to do is going to have no dialogue at all. I fear... I hope this is... And I really enjoyed it, but I'm I'm hoping, based on the first two view- episodes that we viewed, that this is not the best episode of the lot. It can very easily could be, because it was just so well done. It was very well done. And if you're going to do a one-er, if you're mm-hmm. going to have a one person in it, make right. it William Hurt. I mean, yeah. I mean... Because <laughs> he really sells it. Like, you it. really set yourself up for right. a win here. Uh, but the, yeah, the, the production of it was really, yes. really beautifully done. Uh Super fun to watch. I would like to watch it in a not so grainy, mm-hmm. you know, situation. But so that's Battleground. Anything else on that one? No. Let's move on to episode number two. Crouch end. Careful, don't say that. It's basically a dirty word. Uh and here is the setup for this one. And, and that's basically both of these all there are is. pretty flimsy right. on the plots, right? A newlywed couple, played by Claire Forlani and, uh, is it Ian? I Probably guess so. Ian Bailey, goes honeymooning in London, only to get lost in Crouch End, a notorious part of town that may be a portal to another dimension. Now, this story is one of, his, of Stephen King's uh, nods to, what's his face? I've forgotten his name. Um, if only we all could. H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. And the the Lovecraft. The Cthulhu <clears throat> mythos and the old gods. Right. Uh, he, it was originally published in New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos in 1980. And then it was republished in Nightmares and Dreamscapes in 1993. 
and there are direct, distinct, and uh, obvious references. Like the words right. that he uses, the names that he uses are Lovecraftian. Uh, so we meet up with Claire Forlani, who's so beautiful. Yes, if you like Claire Forlani, this is the episode for you. However, sadly, there was so little going on. <sighs> they, they're going to go visit her new husband's friend, uh-huh. I guess. And he lives in Crouchend, and they can't well, get. Okay. It seems to also be an arrangement, like there's a business arrangement somehow. It's on. It's completely unclear. We have no idea. <laughs> um, like, like it's so flimsy. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get a hold of that person who's. He, he doesn't have an address. He just knows Crouchend. The first um, taxi that comes uh, is like, I'm not. Nope, right. and just drives away. Uh, and then the second one takes them, but with weird warnings. Uh, and I don't know how they're, like, I guess they were like, take me to Crouchend and then I'll call from a payphone once we get there. The, okay, it's, it's <laughs> not very well thought out. Um, the cab driver gives Claire Falani's character uh, all sorts of, like, strange explanations about relating the universe to a, a football Right. So we start I mean so they they end up driving to this crouch end area right. and 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 the husband gets out of the car to mm-hmm. go make this phone call and then she stays in the car to talk to the cabbie who's talking about yeah there's thin spots. It reminded me of the sort of nonsense doctor who explanation about time travel. It's a ball it has tiny whiny things on it. I was like, "Oh no, he's going to say tiny whiny." Yeah, but, but that's mercifully he didn't. But I think we need to, in yeah. science fiction, stop comparing things to soccer balls. But here's the thing. Uh-huh. If it's a weird thing, you need to make it a metaphor. And what do we know more better than anything else in London? Soccer. soccer okay. That's right. <laughs> it also felt like, and we've talked about this before, Stephen King's science fiction isn't really big on science. So this is more of like a fantasy piece. Well, also... If you're going to write anything about Lovecraft, it's not going to be big well, on science. He, yeah, but <laughs> what I mean is that it's it was a he's writing about effectively what would be considered supernatural horrors, but in some sort of scientific context. Right. It's an alternate dimension. It's just a hole. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and she decides at some point to get out of the vehicle. At mm-hmm. which point the vehicle disappears. We don't right. see him drive away. Whatever. So now they're stranded. They see two kids who are very rude to them. They see a cat with a weird eye. <laughs> A really bad special effect. They get super creeped out. They can't find a way out. And then uh, the husband gets, disappears. She, like, she's he's running after her. Right. And then he's not. And then she stumbles her way out. And then she's in the police station. Or she gets picked up by the, And then she's back to where there are people. And mm. she goes to the police station. And that's where we sort of, we open, I think, there. We open with her at the police station. Right. And we close with her at the police station, where they say that they just found this cat named Lonnie. He Which was a newly, or he right. was a uh, stray, and it is the same cat with the weird eye. And Lonnie is the name of her husband. And that's the end. Oh, but she runs past a bunch of names of old gods. Yagsagoth was one right. of them, I remember, and there's a bunch of the other ones. And that's basically the whole story? There's not a lot going on here. It's not very well presented either. I don't think so. I think there are some weird camera tricks that they're doing, but Mm -hmm. because the quality of the 
image that we were watching was so poor. I couldn't tell if it was pixelated because it was blown up from a 740 right. standard definition or if it was pixelated because they intended it to be pixelated. It there was it, I think there were some of the dumb camera tricks common at the time which is the whooshing super slow motion and the um blurry frames. I think that was I mean that was something you used to see a lot. Yeah, and I could, I just really couldn't it was there was nothing to the story. To I, I didn't to, care for this one. Like I, I didn't really enjoy watching it. Ian Bailey, if that's his name. I they, think it's Ian. They had a really good they acted really well. Their performances Their were performances there. were fine. They acted like a newlywed couple who was yes. infinitely interested in each other. Yes. And when he has his breakdown, he gets separated from her for a while. Briefly. And uh, he's swallowed into a head and spit back out again. His fear afterwards, like he's on the verge of being catatonic, is is well done. The special effects are terrible, which is really strange considering how good the special effects were in the last episode. In the last one, yeah. Uh, but the cat has this eye that m- makes it look like a Terminator. I think it's supposed to just look like it is missing the eye and the flesh around the orbital right. socket, but it looks like. A cartoon, like it looks like it's wearing a cartoon eye patch. This is very much the level of CGI that we saw in the Langoliers. Yes, where it doesn't have any semblance to reality. It's just odd, and I there's don't really no know what shadows on it, so that it doesn't look mm-hmm. creepy. It just looks. Yeah, they didn't do a makeup job on a cat because the cat would just no, and, and they shouldn't have. That would have been sort cool. of animatronic for the cat. It was just very much like we're laying. Um, but you only ever see the cat turn its head uh-huh. and just stare. They could have made a prosthetic cat right. head yes. that they would have used for a still. That's why I said. They, animatronics would have worked much better than what they would have done. You didn't even need an animatronic. Like, yeah. tronic. You know what I mean? Like, you, like it could have just been... You could have... Because what it is is you see the back of this cat's head, right. and then when it turns... You see this weird face, but it doesn't yeah. then do anything with that face, so it could have no, just yeah. been a, the, a head. If you were associated with Brian Henson, though, you could expect more out of a, a cat. And Jim Henson, Creature Studio, did uh-huh. the effects for this entire series. Which, which makes it really So weird. they should have had right. access to better things. Well, there is a brief moment where the special effects work, and that would be... Uh, the sort of tentacle thing, because this is a Lovecraft story, yeah, that pops up very briefly. Um, but most of it, yeah, I, I I can't fault the actors. No. Because they're giving it the best they can with really thin material. But yeah, I was also like, this only needed to be 20 minutes. Right. This that was like the an other episode thing. of The Old Twilight Zone that was stretched out to a really long period was, of... I really liked long, that there was a second part like, in Battleground that uh-huh. gave them... With the commando and that whole mm. second piece of the fight scene, always right. it's done, but then it isn't. But in this one, I was like, I get it, I get what's happening. I don't need, and we keep seeing the cat and the kids, the cat and the kids, the cat and the kids. Well, there's some weird suggestion that in the film that Claire Falani is um, empathic or telepathic or something, because she keeps reaching or seeing flashes of things. Like there's a group of motorcyclists and. She seems to see them as hedgehogs or oh, something. Oh, that's right. She sees them. They're and almost that's like owl people. Better makeup effects Yeah, it film. is. That one's actually pretty um, cool. And then there's the children. One of the children has a deformed hand or something. Yes. So there's... And it reminded me in that uh, respect of the weird town in uh, John Carpenter's movie, The Mouth of Madness. 
Oh, yes. Uh, where there's a town where there's strange children. Which is the same kind of deal. Right. It is also a Lovecraft. Right, sort of pastiche. Yeah. But that was done a lot better. Yeah, it is. It's, that movie is great. It's a really good film. Um, one of the few movies, I think, that get the whole Lovecraft monster thing. There's a scene where uh, Sam Neill is running down a hallway, and you don't see the monsters clearly. It's just this army of horrible things heading things at him. Things coming at and you. And that was yeah. the first time probably that I've actually seen it done well for the film and captured what... Lovecraft was trying to get with his, his uh, stories. Yeah, so let me just give you a little insight into my history with Lovecraft. Okay. One, I do not like his writing. I think it is terrible. Two, I do like games based on his writing. I right. think they are awesome. Fantasy Flight is a game company that has done both expansive board games mm-hmm. and um, card games, like role-playing games. Uh, based on their mythology, that right. mythology. And I play one of them. I play Arkham Horror, the living card game. That's what mm-hmm. it's called. Uh, I play it over Skype with a friend uh, pretty regularly. We've gone through the first three cycles. Right. The There are now, I think, three more that we have left. Uh, and it is it, the work that they do on the thematics. Right taking this framework that Lovecraft gave them, they build thematically out in really interesting and cool ways. And there's like tons of characters. Like the the card game, I think, is up to like 35 characters. And they have a stable of like 90 with mm. the board games and things. Like, f- like fully realized characters that are, you know, silly. I just, in our last campaign, played a grave digger named William Yorick. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, but, you know, and we, the, the story we did was the path to Carcosa using the yellow, that Robert Chambers, Robert Chambers, the yellow, the king in yellow, the king in yellow, which was also the, not the basis for true detective season one, but like referenced heavily in the that that so there's like these this underlying sort of stream of i want to say no it's not urban legend it's like uh contemporary myth right i guess and this the locations are used all like arkham started i think with lovecraft they use the name in the dc universe um but Arkham Asylum started as a Lovecraft thing. Uh, and then there are various cities and locations that are Lovecraft names that are used right. elsewhere. Like, you, they just come up in pop culture, and it's always like a, something weird could happen here. Right. Um, my first experience was when I was working at Holmes Book Company, and I read uh, uh, The Lurking Fear. Is that a... It's a Lovecraft uh, story. Story, okay. And I enjoyed it, and I started reading some of the other stuff, and I was actually as interested in it as anybody else for a few years. The difficulty with Lovecraft is that you begin to run into the constant themes of miscegenation. Yes. And he is... He's a, not even just... But the fear of miscegenation is a lot of his work. Yes. But there's also... Um, he's a white supremacist. There's not another way to say it. Yes, he is a and white supremacist. He, he, he is also a misanthrope. Right. He's a misanthropic. He hates everyone, but he hates white people slightly less. Right. And then there's that feeling to it. And so when you're reading stories like you run into horror at Red Hook, which is just horrible. Um, I feel like he 
literized, if that's not a word, but I made it a word, mm. the idea that the Westboro Baptist Church touts everything bad is because gays. Mm-hmm. He did it with everything bad is because people of color right. and the mixing of the races. Right, which is and constant. by everything bad, I mean uh, ancient gods are going to come up and destroy us. Right, and it's it's <laughs> interesting that he had he was equally scornful of people with religious beliefs. He was equally scornful. He was he was a very kind of um, he was. Yeah, a misanthrope. He disliked religion. He disliked politics. He disliked any kind of organization of people, it seems. And yeah. his only real connection to other people, aside from a brief period when he was married, was um, communicating with very long letters with a lot of literary figures that have become very important. And so his mythology goes beyond him. My big issue with him is that I can't read him anymore. I can't read the tone mm-hmm. of, you know, especially in this political climate, the sort of... Um, What's essentially, you know, a sort of a white supremacist yeah. worldview, but also that uh, the issue, one of the bigger issues I have with him is that a lot of people like Robert Chambers, who you just mentioned, who wrote uh, The King in Yellow, The Yellow Sign, which is a very creepy story, mm-hmm. get folded into his work when they didn't participate with his mythology. Some of what he did is derivative of people like Arthur Machen, who he also he yes. was very fond of derivative of William Hope Hodgson, you know, Night in, uh, House in the Borderland, which yeah. you've read. He borrows a lot from them, and they wind up getting absorbed into his work, even though they had nothing to do with him. And I don't think that's a problem, by and large, because, like, right. like I said, I really like this Arkham Horror, horror mm-hmm. game. My money is not going to right. and him. Yeah. Um, I like getting access to these other stories that are interesting, right. and they're you know all of this stuff is being licensed. If right. if that's if a lot of it is already in public domain, a lot of it is, yeah. so it wouldn't matter. But you know, and I don't think that. Well, my hope is, if you refuse to deal with anything Lovecraftian based on his worldview that you would understand what is his and what is not his. Right. Well, here's the thing, though, and the reason why it wrinkles me. As an author, I would hate to be judged by my participation in, in somebody who came years after me, essentially imitating the, the or borrowing elements from my work, and then I'm like, oh, I'm part of this guy's work. Which I can... And it, it, that, that's frustrating, but once you die, right. you, you have no say in how your work but then I gets... I also believe you know. that he is not the most compelling writer in the world. Oh, no. I think he's not a he's very com- good writer at all. Really I think some of his uh-huh. ideas are interesting. Like that old God stuff and some of the... Just the straight horror mm-hmm. ideas are really interesting, but I think his writing is not good. But yeah, it's time to get a reevaluation because I get into arguments with people all the time about how important he isn't going. Well, he still a lot of what's attributed to him has nothing to do with him. That's true. And so that's They'll, they will say that Arthur Machen is uh, Lovecraftian. Lovecraftian, and it's like well, that's weird because yeah. he was dead when Lovecraft was born. Like, right. <laughs> and uh, I even heard that said of M. R. James, who might also, have introduced us same. to And James was. <laughs> Probably the exact opposite in a lot of respects to Lovecraft. Right. And I think that... actually po- called him out. He did not like him. It's... Pro- okay, so they were not... They no, were no, of no, the no, same no. time. Uh, well, uh, they, they overlapped. Okay. So, what you need to then call out is, hey, learn your... Sh- 
learning right. history, learning our actual horror history. Right. And it's it's a it's a field worthy of, of and not in you know, a you're research. not a true fan if yeah no 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 it's not s- that situation but if you believe that this is Lovecraftian mm-hmm. do a little bit of research right find out that that is not in fact the case don't use that term but anything in the Cthulhu mythos all that stuff is right. Lovecraftian and like, that was perpetuated by a lot of people August Derleth Robert Locke um, Robert Howard you know who wrote Conan included uh, you know characters so. It expanded because of his friends. Yeah. And it was like, Most that's a cool mythology. Like, that's a neat mythology and a neat... Mm-hmm. And, and and because it overlaps with our world, you yeah. can kind of mix it in with whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, King did this several times, right? Because Grandma is a story in the Lovecraft mythos. Yes. Let me see if I can. Also, H.P. Lovecraft is such a good name and just so wasted on Lovecraftzine.com. As of November 14th, 2011, Crouch End and N, and I think Grandma, I think that that one is, are the Lovecraft thing. N is a riff on The Great God Pan. Okay. Which is Arthur Machen's story. Arthur Machen's story. Which is, if you haven't read it, Arthur Machen's Great God Pan is a great story. Um, So... So yeah, he dips his toe back and forth into mm-hmm. it. And like I said, this one was published explicitly in a thing that was like other stories in the Cthulhu mythos, right. like new takes on the Cthulhu mythos. So in 1980, so not that new. <laughs> 40 years old. So that's those episodes. Mm-hmm. Up, up next week, we are, I will, and I will do a brief touch on who's going to be in it. We're going to be watching episode three, which is Omni's Last Case, starring William H. Macy, which we do see in the trailer. Or in and the William H. Macy. Beginning. And then... Apparently plays two characters. And the fourth episode is The End of the Whole Mess, starring uh, Ron Livingston and Henry Thomas. I like Henry Thomas. So that is going to be what we will talk about next week. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, do you have anything you would like to recommend? I don't have a modern thing to recommend so much. We saw some very interesting movies over the last couple of weeks. And actually, one thing I would recommend, Stuber. Stuber. Which I enjoyed a lot more than I thought it would. Yes. I understand why it wasn't a success, because sometimes it has a hard well, time. Well, let's start with what it is. Right. It is a film with Camille. Camille Nagiani and... Dave Batista. Dave Batista. It's currently uh, playing on HBO mm-hmm. Go Now, whatever you got. Right. And uh, it's an action comedy. And I uh, I almost didn't see it because I'd heard so many things about the film and the people who didn't care for it. I thought it was actually very funny. I thought it was funny. I thought it was entertaining. I was, uh, honestly, pretty fucking high when we were watching but it. But it was... But right, I, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. There's a lot of other performers in it. Mira Sorvino's in it. Karen Gillian. Natalie Morales, who I like very much. And Iko Uais, who is... Uh, an Indonesian martial artist and actor who is one of my favorites, and he plays the villain in this film. A very slithery kind of incredibly agile villain, which is... Yes. Yeah, they play that up. They play up his yeah, they skill do. set a lot, and it's very funny. It's used to really funny ends, but uh, I understand that um, that people had problems with the tone because at times it's really violent, and other times it just goes for the laugh. But what I appreciate also is that you're looking at a film with two uh, two non-white leads. Yeah. 
Oh, that's and true. There's, yeah. Um, it's a buddy cop picture with two non-white, and that's not saying that, again, it's just that we've seen the other thing so many times before. Yes, yeah. And the characters seem to actually be pretty fully developed. There's a yeah, a, a character um, issue between Camille and a woman that he has an enormous crush on. Yeah. And the way that that's handled is actually really mature. Really good. I really was like, please don't let this play out the way that every other movie would make this play out. And I really... And then I was like, well, I called the thing, the Uh very last thing that we find out, I called it when they first met. Uh I was like, blossoming love. But no, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was was, really fun. There was a lot to it. There was a lot more going on than I think people got. I will say for a tight 87 minutes, Uh a lot happened in it. Yeah, it does. And... And uh, he, there's an interesting kind of performance that Batista gives. He's an interesting dude. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, he, he's. An, <laughs> I, I don't. I read a quote where I he was know. discussing how he wanted to do more drama, and uh, it's like I would like to do drama. I would like to do dramatic roles, but I am built like a goddamn gorilla. Is yeah. the way you put it. <laughs> yeah, I, he knows. He's six he foot knows. six, and he's built like a gorilla. So. Yeah. I, I know that there's a certain kind of part I won't do, and there's I can't do, rather, I won't be accepted in, but I can do comedy with this, the same way that Salma Hayek, who's at times just too stunning to look at, goes, well, I can do comedy because I can make fun of the way that make I look. Make fun of, yes, this right, package you know. that I am in, yeah. Right, and so he seems to approach it the same way. I can make fun of this, too, if I don't want to take it seriously, and he does that. There's a line that I won't spoil. When he first gets into Camille's car... That is his name is Stu, and he drives an Uber, and his dickwad boss calls him Stuber. Right. That's where the title comes from. But there's a scene when he first comes to the car, and he drops a line that that was hysterical. There's a lot of funny lines in this movie. But trigger warning to people who are upset by violence, they don't kid around. There's R-rated violence in this movie. Oh, yeah. There's some wicked violence. Right, and some of it is funny, and some of it's just like, ow, ow, ow. No, wasn't expecting that. But yeah, that's a good, entertaining film. So did you have something that you would like to recommend? Uh, I'm not going to recommend anything right now. I'm going to recommend you try and find these episodes and and check them out. Uh, I've been watching a lot of TV. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. And by podcasts, I mean one podcast. I mean Blank Check. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's still happening that is my life. Blank Trek and Ziggy being all up in my face. Those are my that's, those are the two constants in my life. So next week, episodes three and four of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at latecomerspod. Or you can find us on Facebook if you search latecomers podcast and join us sometimes we post things in there in the meantime i remind you to take your medicine and we remind you better late late than than never. never